The war in Ukraine escalating rapidly as Russia seeks to encircle and take full control of Kyiv, the capital. A lot of aerial bombardment underway, ground troops fighting it out in the streets, lots of video circulating. This is the war that we had all hoped would be avoided, but it is fully underway now and likely to get dramatically more intense with higher levels of casualties, including civilian casualties, in the days ahead. This is a fight that the U.S. is not yet involved in, but certainly the international community, including the U.S. and our NATO allies, have a role to play diplomatically and with financial sanctions from the outside. So how's the Biden regime doing with all that? Well, you look at what's happening, clearly not doing enough. And people are already asking questions. Why is it that the full scope and scale of financial sanctions have not already been deployed against, the, against Putin's regime by the Biden administration? given the level of ferocity of this attack and the fact that they were trying to initially prevent any such incursion from happening. Well, here is Deputy National Security Advisor Dalip Singh on, for example, the decision not to push for sanctions on Russia's energy, which is by far the most important part of the Russian economy is energy. You're not going to sanction that. Here's the response you get. Targeting the Russian energy industry is totally off the table. Is that what you're saying, Billy? What I'm saying is that our measures were not designed to disrupt in any way the current flow of energy from Russia to the world. Now, um, we have also said we are going to cut off Russia's access to cutting-edge technology. That technology can be used across many sectors. Uh, and, and so as it relates to Russia's long-term productive capacity, um, we are seeking to degrade that capacity, but nothing, nothing in the short term as it relates to energy. Nothing in the short term as it relates to energy. This is a war that could be over in weeks, perhaps even days, and we're being told about the long game of energy with Russia. Nothing that's going to actually bite right away at the Russian economy. I didn't really think that's going to be enough. The Biden administration seems increasingly unserious on this and so many other issues. One of the reasons we're in this predicament, one of the reasons why it's so clear we have this problem in the first place of Russian energy and the leverage that they have from it is because the Biden administration came in absolutely hell-bent on making sure that the uh, fossil fuel access that we could have would not be a part of their energy policy, that they would make it difficult to drill, they would make it difficult to frack, as if somehow there's a virtue in that, as we know they think there is, from fighting climate change. Energy independence in America is about national security. That is clear. That much is true. And so given the realities of dealing with Russia, that Jen Psaki telling us all that we're going to have to carry some costs here in order to stand up for our principles, well, shouldn't we offset that by doing everything possible to get as much fossil fuel energy flowing domestically as we can? White House Press Secretary Saki wants you to know, no, they don't want to do that. You know, climate change is still more important. Watch. Um, the president said today the notion that this is going to last for a long time is highly unlikely. Would he try to ensure that by lifting some of the restrictions that he's put in place on the energy industry or rethinking some projects like the Keystone Pipeline? Well, first of all, the Keystone Pipeline is not flowing, so I'm not sure how that would solve anything. There's also plenty of oil leases that are not being tapped into by oil companies, so you should talk to them about that and why. Uh, but what the president's talking about is we certainly understand, and he said this today, right? may have been in response to your question. I don't remember. But um, 
if there's an invasion of another country by a big country, there's going to be impacts on the markets, right? And we certainly anticipated that, and we anticipate that as it relates to the global oil market as well. So that's why the President, for weeks now, has been engaging with a range of big global suppliers, some in the Middle East, others, to see what we can do to ensure there's supply out there in the market to reduce the impact on the American people. A lot of blather there. Why don't the you, why don't the American people know that they can count on the White House, any White House, to push forward domestic energy production at a time when that is absolutely essential and will continue to be essential? Well, because they are ideologically invested against it, because these are limbs, they're leftists, they're crazy. It doesn't matter to them what the reality is. They live in some alternate universe. Which then brings me to some of the other actions that the Biden regime took in the run-up to this Russian invasion of Ukraine, which remember, Putin was going to be scared of Biden, Biden told us. Turned out that wasn't the case. What a shock. But also when it comes to rallying not just allies, but other states around the world, China, for example, on this issue, the Biden administration had been meeting with China, this is according to the New York Times, over three months to show intelligence that Russia was preparing for an invasion so that they could get the Chinese to help us try to diplomatically and financially box out Russia from taking this kind of an action. You know what the Chinese response was? To not help us at all and to actually pass along to the Russians whatever sensitive information we gave to the Chinese. Because you see, these are now two countries that view themselves as increasingly in, in, in the same uh, bunker, so to speak, and willing to work together to thwart the international community and certainly work together to undermine the U.S. globally. So this has just been an utter debacle up to this point. This has been a complete mess. The Biden administration, which prides itself on having so much dignity in its diplomacy, has been feckless and completely ineffective. But there are people on the left who realize that this is not a crisis that they can add to the list of growing crises that Biden and his team simply can't handle. Among them, Hillary Clinton, who trying to stand with her Democrats on this, say that Biden's handled the Ukraine crisis well. Why? There is no doubt that we were not in a position just a few years ago to rally anybody. And now with uh, President Biden rallying uh, NATO, rallying uh, not only Western Europe and Eastern Europe, but far beyond those borders, to understand the very real threat that Vladimir Putin poses, uh, and then to begin imposing sanctions that will ratchet up. Uh, and I think that is exactly what he should be doing. Exactly what he should be doing. Doesn't work so far. Haven't been able to figure this out up to this point. What makes anyone think that Joe Biden, who's been consistently wrong on foreign policy for over 40 years, what makes anyone think that he's all of a sudden going to be savvy on this? Get ready for the Democrats to show you who they really are, the people in charge making these decisions, the big voices of the Democrat Party, because this is going to continue to be a disaster. Ukraine is going to be a nasty war. It's going to be a lot of casualties. And Biden's going to look like a bystander, a bumbling buffoon, if anything. So what are they going to do? Start to blame Republicans in this country. Republicans who are not in charge, not a Republican president, not Republican control of Congress, but it's the GOP's fault. In fact, they're, they're even willing to go to the lengths of slandering Republicans as somehow pro-Putin 
Now, there have been many voices who have done this over the last week, uh, notably John Stewart, the former comedian who now has a podcast, uh, Joy Behar on The View, who's just a professional imbecile, and Hillary Clinton herself saying there are people giving aid and comfort to Putin. Watch. Well, Mika, I do think it's important to support uh, both the Ukrainian military and then um, depending upon what happens and how quickly events unfold, uh, supporting those who are putting up resistance. But I, I want to make a, another point, which is that uh, we have to also make sure that within our own country, uh, we are calling out those people uh, who are giving aid and comfort to Vladimir Putin, who are talking about what a genius he is, what a smart move it is, uh, who are unfortunately uh, being broadcast uh, by Russian uh, media, uh, not only inside Russia, but in uh, Europe to demonstrate the division within our own country. He's referring to an interview that I did with Clay Travis earlier this week and President Trump in which he referred to, uh, to Putin's move here as genius. He was talking about the tactics of what Putin has done to outmaneuver Joe Biden. He also said very clearly in that interview, this would never have happened while he was president because he never would have allowed it because he clearly opposes it and thinks that it is awful. But why go into that context when you can actually just slander the former president and act like he's the problem? Joe Biden's in charge, not Donald Trump. But it's, it's appalling what they're willing to do and say because their guy is failing. We can all see it. Coming up, we'll talk about the situation on the ground, Russia versus Ukrainian defense forces here with Bill Roggio of the Foundation for Defense of Democracy. We want to bring you the latest from the situation in Ukraine as the fighting intensifies and the Russian forces close a cordon of sorts around the capital of Kiev in Ukraine. The Russian aims here are certainly top of the list of concerns. Are they trying to just topple the government or are they going to seize the entirety of the country over time through force? Let's talk to Bill Roggio. He's a senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense and Democracy. He joins us now. Bill, good to see you. Great to see you, Buck. Thanks for having me on. Uh, let's just start with what what do you make so far of the Ukrainian resistance as they've been able to mount it against the Russian? I've seen some reporting of a thousand Russian casualties. Does that seem possible to you? What what do you think about what we've seen so far in terms of the combat that's been underway? Yeah, this is really difficult to discern. You have a lot of information operations going on in both sides. But I would not be surprised if the Russians have taken a thousand casualties that would very likely be killed and wounded combined. This assault on Ukraine has been launched from three different directions, from the north, the east and from the south. So you have a significant you have tens of thousands of Russian troops. I've heard over 30,000 Russian to 40,000 Russian troops advancing and this is uh, so it wouldn't be surprising. The Ukrainians are putting up resistance. The last number I saw is they've taken around 140 uh, soldiers. I think it was 140 soldiers and civilians killed. So usually you triple or multiply by five to 10 um, of the number of, of killed. You take that to the wounded. 
right? So you're going to have significant casualties on both sides. This is a conventional war. This is not a uh, an insurgency like Afghanistan where you where there's plinking and it's one or two casualties a day. We're to, we're talking real warfare with aircraft, with tanks, with artillery. There's missile and rocket strikes, and then the Ukrainians. I think they're they're mounting the best defense they can. But the reality is the Russians have all the advantages here. The terrain is on their side. They can attack from three different directions. That gives them the ability to, um, it, it keeps the Ukrainians from from uh, uh, concentrating their forces. They have to split up in, in order to attempt to halt the Russian advance. They're trying to defend everything. And in effect, they're going to defend nothing. We know that the Minister of National Defense of Poland, uh, Mariusz Blazak, uh, has tweeted out that the convoy with the ammunition we had sent over to Ukraine has already reached our neighbors. We support Ukrainians. We stand in solidarity and we firmly oppose Russian aggression. So they've sent arms already into this. What are the, if anything, uh, Bill, are, are there some game changer, either munitions or, or just material support things that, that could be sent that would help the Ukrainians substantially in this early phase of the conflict? In the early phase, I think the two most important important uh, weapon systems would be anti-tank missiles and anti-aircraft missiles. Um, those could slow down the Russian forces. But I, at the end of the day, I think if Russia decides to put all of its military weight behind this operation, what we're seeing right now is really just the advanced forces. It's the it, um, they haven't advanced all over 140,000 troops that were on the border. We're talking maybe a third of their forces, maybe a quarter of their forces have entered Ukraine. This is this is the beginning of the operation. The Russians are shaping the battlefield right now. Those two types of weapons could prevent the, the anti-aircraft missiles, prevent uh, Russian air superiority, or at least make the Russians make, make things more difficult for them to operate. And then Russian armor, Russian tanks, uh, can be slowed, and if you could slow them down, that will help. But I'm of the mind that this war was was lost back in 2014 when the Russians invaded the Crimea and the international community did nothing. Uh, I, the, I think the Russians have all the military edge here. It's just that we ju we're just sort of watching this out. It's almost like last summer with Afghanistan. The Taliban was on the offensive. It was just we were just counting the days before they took Kabul. Representative Jack Reed said this uh, about Ukraine. My sense is in a matter of days, the capital, Kyiv, could fall. Watch. To date, uh, the Ukrainians have been fighting fiercely in many places throughout the country. Uh, they're facing uh, overwhelming odds given the number of personnel the Russians have committed, the equipment they have, the air superiority they have. They can move through the air without any opposition. Uh, but I think we all should be impressed with the courage and the leadership of uh, President Zelensky and the, and the fighting spirit of the Ukrainian people. Uh, and that, I think, is probably giving, uh, hopefully, the Russians sort of second thoughts about how, quote-unquote, easy this would be. It's going to be difficult, but uh, my senses are overwhelmingly forced that the, the, in a matter of days we could see the capital fall. If that's true, and the capital does fall in a matter of days, Bill, do you think that the Ukrainian resistance, uh, armed resistance, will continue in other parts of the country? Or is it likely that there'll be some effort at a negotiation between whatever's left of the Ukrainian government and Putin's regime? 
Yeah, first, I agree with Senator Reid's assessment there. Other than I don't think I think the the Russians would not Putin would not have gone on to this uh, attack if he wasn't willing to take casualties. He's willing to do that. So there's the casualties will not give him pause. Will not get him to stop this operation. The if if Kiev uh, falls in the next couple of days, the Russians are on the outskirts of the city. They are fighting inside some neighborhoods. And again, this is just the advanced party that's there. The, the full might of the Russian military has not fallen on the capital. I do believe that they will continue to fight. They can fall back and move westward. That's where the terrain becomes a little bit more advantageous to them. But the question will be is how much forces will the Ukrainians commit to the current fight? How much will they keep in reserve? And will the West continue to support them if they're moving back? Whether they'll go into some type of resistance and underground movement, I think that also is likely. But I don't think we're going to see what we saw in countries like Iraq or Afghanistan, where you'll have a, a bloody insurgency. I, I don't think us Westerners, and I include the Ukrainians in that, um, have have that mindset, that way of war. It's something that a lot of us, uh, uh, not you and I, Buck, but a lot of Americans, a lot of Westerners have lost. They've lost the understanding that wars are, are battles of wills, they're commitments. Just wanted to have you react to this. This was a flashback with Joe Biden back before he became commander in chief about the threat of what would happen if Trump became president to our national security. Watch this one. It's going to take a hell of a lot of work to make up for all the damage he's done internationally and nationally. His network of thugs and co-conspirators are going to continue to try to undermine our democracy in the meantime. Imagine what he can do in another year. Imagine what can happen in Ukraine. Um, well, we're seeing with Biden as president, not Trump, what's happening in Ukraine. Pretty remarkable when you see the promises that were made by the incoming administration or the incoming president and what the reality has actually been. Yeah, it is. I mean, look, and again, the the Crimea, uh, Ukrainian Crimea was invaded in 2014 when President Obama was in office and um, President Biden was then vice president. Again, this is the seeds for what we're seeing today were were planted then. Uh, you know, we can debate whether Putin would have invaded Ukraine if, if Trump was president or not. We don't know the answer to that. But we do know that Putin invaded Ukraine with President Biden in office. He can't pass. You know, I've seen a lot of commentary on people want to point to statements made by former President Trump. It's a lot of deflection that I'm seeing going on here. The reality is, is President Trump hasn't been in office for one year plus. This is President Biden's um foreign policy disaster, the second of his administration in, in, within a year of him taking office, and he needs to own this, and people need to recognize this. How long do you think this war goes on, Bill, before there's some conclusion? I, I think we might be looking at anywhere from four to eight weeks. I, it's just a guess. Uh, it depends on how well the Russians can maintain their logistics, how hard the Ukrainians fight. But that's why I'm going to give it a, a one to two month time frame. I think there still is fight in the Ukrainian forces. They have had some tactical successes, but the reality is the Russians have all the advantages. Um, I think the key issue for the Russians will be consolidation and logistics. And will they slow it down as they advance westward? That's those are the unknowns. We're going to find out with the Russian military how modernized they are in this at, at, towards the end of this operation. 
El Rogio, always appreciate it, sir. Good to see you. Thanks, Buck. Have a great day. The CDC will ease masking restrictions in about 70% of the country, including inside of schools. Hmm. Funny how quickly the science changes when the polls demand it. We'll get into that next in a buck race. Let's not forget that we've been in a two-year-long battle against a virus, COVID virus, its variants, its mutations. How's it all going? We were told that it was two weeks to slow the spread with some of these mitigation measures. Then it turned into basically two years. What does the data tell us about how successful we were or weren't in actually stopping all this madness? Well, friends, in the Buck Brief, we'll explain. Stay with me. It all started with two weeks to slow the spread. You remember that, right? Then they kept extending it and extending it and extending it. Adding new things, saying masks work, masks don't work. Actually, two masks work. Maybe N95 masks work. Get one shot, get two shots, get three shots, maybe four shots. Social distance, six feet, three feet, 20 feet, no feet. All kept changing all the time. They kept saying the science changed. That's quite strange because they never actually had any science to point to that had changed. It was just what they felt like at any point in time based upon the data that we could all see. We also know the CDC continues to hold back critical data about things like the effectiveness, or lack thereof, of booster shots for a large contingent of the population. So where are we now with the mask mandates? Hmm. One way to look at this is the Biden administration has a State of the Union address coming up on Tuesday. What will the State of the Union address be like if Biden can't claim some kind of victory over COVID-19. Remember, his primary slogan for his campaign in 2020 was that he would shut down the virus, not shut down the economy. Has he shut down the virus? They put us through all these vaccine mandates and all this madness, and what was the final outcome? Well, a lot of places around America and around the world, in fact, set all-time records for COVID cases, despite the mass vaccination campaign. And that included places like New York City that had, had incredibly high vaccination compliance rates with mandates that were enforced with authoritarian zeal. So how did that all work out? Not very well. What about mask mandates? Remember what we were told back in spring, summer of 2020? Masks will dramatically slow the spread of COVID. That never was, in fact, the case. It was never the case that masks could point to slow COVID. So why do we keep them on? It became very political. It became almost a religious symbol, the sacrament of Fauciism, if you will, something you wear on your face to show your compliance. Well, guess what? They're turning that all around now. CDC is going to be, according to ABC News, easing mask mandates under new metrics. More than half of U.S. counties, which make up 70 percent of where Americans live, will be in areas deemed low or medium risk because of a reduced number of COVID hospitalizations. The CDC would no longer recommend that these communities insist on indoor masking. Insist on indoor masking? That's so interesting. Um, some places will probably do so anyway. There's been a lot of insanity around this. Uh, that's, been the tr that's been the case for a long time. People have refused to understand what's so plainly obvious to anyone, which is that mask mandates do not work. They did not work. They have never worked. They will not work. But a lot of folks think they're very, very smart who are supporting this for two years, and they don't want to think to themselves, 
Maybe we were not as clever as we thought. Maybe we should have thought long and hard about what the realities were here. New York, for example, has, as of today, New York City has dropped its, get ready for this, folks, outdoor mask mandate for schools. Now, the CDC, even in the spring of 2021, said that outdoor masking probably doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Uh, it goes beyond that. They actually can't even prove any real number of cases from outdoor masking in the first place. There have been massive outdoor venues, outdoor rallies where people have gathered together and there were not super spreader events. We all know this. And we just saw at the Super Bowl, there were all kinds of celebrities and fancy people who were gathered together in close quarters, masked, I'm sorry, unmasked. um, And that's at a massive open air venue. So why would children still be masked up in schools? Because Democrats thought that this was a way to show their virtue. We're going to keep the kids safe by effectively abusing them, which is really what happened here. Outdoor mask mandates never made sense. The fact that here we are two years into the pandemic and children still had an outdoor, the indoor mask mandate is stupid. Outdoor mask mandate is insane. Just insane. No justification for it whatsoever. But here's what's going on. You've got COVID cases declining in the U.S. just almost 20% from last week. They're down over 60% nationwide. And I do think that this is, uh, this is where we are starting to see the reality play out here of politics in real time. Um, they know that with cases declining rapidly and people really tired of all these restrictions, the cases didn't decline because of restrictions. That's obvious. Um, the virus ran its course of about eight to 12 weeks, which is usually what has happened in the past. You get a surge for a few months, then it goes down. A surge and it goes down. It's not mitigation measures, because places that put the measures in place and others that don't, no difference between them. So mask mandates were absurd all along. Meanwhile, Rochelle Walensky, who's trying to desperately hold on to whatever credibility she has, uh, put out this tweet. Overall risk of severe disease due to COVID-19 is generally lower with widespread population immunity through vaccination boosters and prior infection. We also have more tools, testing, high-quality masks, more treatment, improved ventilation. Almost none of that stuff made any difference whatsoever. I mean, I, I mean, some of it's zero different. Oh, the testing does what exactly? People are testing multiple times over the course of a week just because they're neurotic. It was absurd. Um, but notice the CDC is now making it possible for people to take masks off children in places that are still masking them, or at least they're saying that that would be okay. This was Dr. Fauci, uh, the worst person in America, just last week. Watch this. Now, we could get lucky because the trajectory right now is going way down. And it very well may be that if you take masks off the kids in the next week or so, it's going to keep going down. But you've really got to be careful. You know, you don't want to say it's an absolutely wrong decision. It's understandable why people want to take masks off the kids. But right now, given the level of activity that we have, it is risky. Was it risky last week, but not now? How? It's not based on the numbers, it's based on the politics, it's based on the Biden regime wanting to give a speech on Tuesday where they don't seem like they're a bunch of COVID mandate and mitigation lunatics, at least not as much as they have been in the past. That's the determining factor here. It's not about the science. Fauci can blabber about that all day long, doesn't make it true. These people abused all of us, not just children, all of us, with things that did not work, that were not worth our time. 
All right, coming up, what kind of economic impact could continued sanctions against Russia have for us here at home in America? And what does energy policy have to do with all this? We'll talk to Stephen Moore of FreedomWorks in a moment. What will the economic impact be of continued sanctions against Russia at a time when the U.S. is already suffering from inflation, rising prices, and unsteady markets, to put it mildly? What will this mean for us? Will there be more pain at the pump? More pain everywhere you buy stuff because, as Jen Psaki said, it's costly to stand on principle. What will this mean? Well, we're talking to Stephen Moore about this. He is a senior economic contributor at FreedomWorks. Stephen, thanks for being with us. Thank you. So what should folks expect? I mean, national gas price today, 357, 268. This is the national gas price average. It was 268 last year at this time, 357 now. That's a pretty substantial increase in a year's time. Will the price go up if the current uh, trends hold? And how much do you think they could go up? Well, the, the, currently the price of oil uh, in the international markets is somewhere around $100 a barrel. It, it's been floating around between $95 and $105 a barrel. So that's the equivalent um, in, a, in a week or two of gas being closer to $4 a gallon. And then if you're in New York or California, I'm sorry, <laughs> you're probably looking at $5 a gallon gasoline. And so, yeah, there will be clearly a hit from the uh, from the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. But something really ha interesting happened uh, yesterday. Uh, when the invasion started where the stock market fell by 800 points and the, the price of oil went up well above $100 a barrel. And then Joe Biden gave a speech. And what was interesting about that speech, uh, he talked about the toughest sanctions ever. Well, they really weren't so tough. And he basically said, well, we're not gonna put sanctions on uh, Russian oil and gas. And so then the price of oil fell because that meant the supply would continue and Wall Street loved that. The problem is if you wanna really put the hurt to, to Russia and punish them for invading Ukraine, you have to go after their energy sector and Biden uh, chafed at that. And so now uh, you've got a situation where the stock market actually rallied, but what is this gonna do about you know the situation in Ukraine? They are penalties without any teeth. And so uh, I do think we're gonna see an increase in the gas price but this means that this crisis could go on a lot longer. So do you think that there's a way right now that the Biden administration could actually have some effect on what the price of gas is? Because in his speech, he said uh, just yesterday, he'll do everything he can to try to ameliorate, uh, mitigate the pain that we may feel at the pump. I mean, here's a reporter who asked Jen Psaki in the West Wing, Hey, is Biden rethinking, you know, getting basically just being hostile toward energy, energy uh, production as a general policy matter? Here's how that exchange went, Steve. Would he try to ensure that by lifting some of the restrictions that he's put in place on the energy industry or rethinking some projects like the Keystone Pipeline? Well, first of all, the Keystone Pipeline is not flowing, so I'm not sure how that would solve anything. If there's an invasion of another country by a big country, there's going to be impacts on the markets, right? And we certainly anticipated that, and we anticipate that as it relates to the global oil market as well. So that's why the president, for weeks now, has been engaging with a range of big global suppliers, some in the Middle East, others, to see what we can do to ensure there's supply out there in the market to reduce the impact on the American people. So are they are they kind of coming around to 
the drill baby drill, as we used to say here? You think they're going to start to change their tune a little bit on this one, Stephen? So, I mean, it's important for people to understand what's going on here. Okay, here's the real story. I mean, Joe Biden came into office uh, 13 months ago and he declared more war on American energy. So we reduced our oil and gas output, but we've reduced our oil output by about 2 million barrels a day. And then we've, we've discontinued these pipelines that are necessary to transport it. They put all sorts of regulations on LNG terminals, which are necessary so that we can export the oil and gas. Well, who do you think all of that benefited? Well, obviously it benefited Putin, right? He's the big winner there. Because when we produce less energy, then of course, Putin's and the price of oil goes up, Putin is the big winner. And that's exactly, so we have enabled this, right? And so now we're in a situation, and in other words, if we hadn't done all that thing, and Trump were still president, there's no doubt in my mind that this invasion never would have happened in the first place. What, what I hoped that Joe Biden would say yesterday is the obvious. Hey, you know what? I made a mistake. We are going to build the Keystone Pipeline. We are going to drill, baby, drill. We're going to produce our oil or gas, our coal, our nuclear. We're going to use everything we got. And I didn't hear any of that in the speech. Did you? No, no, not at all. In fact, it seems like we're supposed to pretend that they weren't anti-energy, anti-American energy, even in the past, as, as you suggest, oh, well, there should well, be. Yeah, they are pro-energy, but they actually have this fantasy, and it's a fantasy that somehow we're going to get our, our energy from windmills. I mean, it's the it really is a truly dangerous delusion. We might be able to, you know, in 20 years, maybe to get 15% of our energy from wind and solar power. But the idea that we're going to just dismantle the, you know, we get today in the United States, we get 70% of our energy from fossil fuels. You're going to turn that off immediately? Uh, and by the way, this doesn't do anything to help the environment. All we have done is shifted the production out of the United States to countries like China, which is building 100 coal plants, Russia, and Saudi Arabia, and the OPEC countries. Somebody explain to me how that's going to reduce global warming. Stephen, I, I gotta, I gotta ask you this. I mean, there seems to be a, a dissonance here, um, something of a contradiction, because on the one hand, we're being told get ready for economic pain because we're standing on principle with these sanctions against Russia. But here's a reporter asking a Biden advisor about this saying, well, hold on, why not target the energy sector then? Because that would really hit Russia where it hurts. Here's how that went. Targeting the Russian energy industry is totally off the table. Is that what you're saying, Billy? What I'm saying is that our measures were not designed to disrupt in any way the current flow of energy from Russia to the world. Now, um, we have also said we are going to cut off Russia's access to cutting edge technology. That technology can be used across many sectors. Uh, and, and so as it relates to Russia's long-term productive capacity, um, we are seeking to degrade that capacity, but nothing, nothing in the short term as it relates to energy. Who was that? Uh, why? Yeah. Well, who was that? Some Biden advisor on energy, I think. <laughs> I, I didn't recognize who it was. Naleep Singh. He's speaking at the, in the White House. So he obviously, so, I mean, it's a, it's a dim-witted view of the world. You know, we should have, it's like, well, we, are we ever going to ramp up our oil and gas production? I mean, look, we have, because of the shale revolution, we have 500 years worth of coal. We have 250 years worth of natural gas. And we have 150 years worth of oil. We're not running out of this stuff. We should be using it both from our economy point of view and in terms of creating jobs and GDP. I mean, my God, the, the oil price of $100 a barrel, if we're 2 million barrels less a day, that's $200 million we're losing per day. That's like $75 billion we're just 
that goes down the drain. I really, I don't understand the logic of, of the energy policy, but I had predicted that we would arrive at this point. I just didn't think it would happen so quickly. And so in 13 months, we've gone from a country that was completely energy independent to a country that's now, we're actually importing oil and gas now from Russia. How stupid is that? Strikes me as pretty insane. How do you think this plays out? Is the Biden administration going to escalate the sanctions or are they gonna get tired of it pretty quickly? Well, remember what I said at the outset, that the only sanctions that are really going to hurt uh, Putin is to go after his energy. By the way, who do you think owns those energy fields in, in Russia? Putin does. We're, we're making him the richest person in the world. And the guy is a menace to society. So um, we, you've got to put some sanctions on their energy production. That's 40% of their economy. We're, we're, we're the, the sanctions that we did put on him were little slaps on the wrist. Steven, thanks for being with us from FreedomWorks. Thanks so I much. I wish I had a happy message, but I, really, I think it is, it, you, you use the word, not me, but I think it's the appropriate one. It's insane what we're doing in America right now, and we should be getting back to making America the number one energy. You know, when I used to talk to Trump about it, he'd say, I don't just want to make America energy independent. I want America to be the energy dominant country in the world. And we could be, and we should be. Totally agree. Thanks so much, Steven. Okay, thank you. Another problem over at CNN and a heartfelt video of a Ukrainian dad will bring a tear to your eye. We got that coming up in quick hits. All right, time for quick hits, which are new stories we wanted to get to, couldn't get to in the big blocks, but still think you should see some serious, some funny, some absurd. Um, we mix it all together here. And at a time when there's uh, obviously, a very high level of concern and anxiety over the situation of Ukraine. There are going to be moments where you just say, I cannot believe that, that just happened on TV as you're watching. So this got a lot of attention. This went viral right away because it was in the early hours, really, of the Russian blitzkrieg into Ukraine. And this transition from CNN's Ukraine coverage to the commercial break is, um, you got to see this. A little bit of chicken fry, cold beer on a Friday night, a pair of jeans that fit just uh, Not good, not good. Uh, sometimes scheduling stuff like that can happen, but uh, you got to be a little more on the ball than that. A little bit, a little more of a transition for that audience, I would say. Uh, unfair to Applebee's too. I mean, you know, they're just trying to tell people chicken. Sure, it's pretty good. Um, but anyway, that was, a, that was a rough one, given the coverage that we've already seen. In this country, there are a lot of people uh, on the left, predominantly, who take what are actually popular stands that will only raise their profile, help them professionally, uh, allow them to make more money, and they want to be treated like heroes for it. Um, they think that they're speaking truth to power when really they're just showing their wokeness to get more wokeness points. And that often results in, as I said, professional benefits, a whole range of things going their way. Um, that is not the case if you are a Russian citizen, a person who is uh, carrying a Russian Federation passport, and you publicly speak out right now against what's going on. Andrei Rublev, who is a, a world-class tennis player, wrote in the, in his, when he advanced to the finals of a USTA tournament in, uh, or sorry, the, whatever it is, the 
tennis association that runs the global tournaments, uh, advanced to the final in Dubai. Rublev wrote this on the screen of the, uh, or on the camera, I should say, that was covering the event. Why? Two sets, but Rublev said not so fast. And he might just have a message, Andrei Rublev. I think we can get behind that. The Russian. No war, please. Sentiment so many of us share right now. And Rublev, he goes back to Russia. That's that's a, a brave move because Putin, Putin plays rough. He plays dirty and does not want anyone who's willing to speak out against him. Now, this was a heartfelt one. A, a Ukrainian father. Look, there's thousands and thousands of Ukrainian citizens who are taking up arms in defense of their homeland, of their country, of their homes themselves. And they're being given weapons. They have very limited, if any, training, but they want to stand and fight against the Russian invader. A Ukrainian father here said goodbye to his family while he was going to stay behind to fight the Russians. Watch. Part of the cost of Putin's war of aggression. These are fathers, husbands, brothers out there now defending their homes against the Russian war machine. For what? For what? Why is Putin doing this? Question a lot of us have been asking for a long time. Then there's this from ESPN. Former heavyweight champion, boxing champion, Vitaly Klitschko, who is the mayor of Ukraine's capital city of Kiev, plans to take up arms to defend against Russia's invasion, along with his brother, a brother Vladimir. Um, so the Klitschko brothers, two famous uh, world-class boxers, are staying behind to fight against Ukraine. These guys are millionaires. They're famous. They don't have to be there at all. They're staying to fight. So there are people who are stepping up in defense of their homeland all across Ukraine. We'll pray for the people of Ukraine tonight and pray for a speedy end to this conflict. Absolute bare minimum loss of life possible. Thanks for being here with me on Hold the Line. Appreciate you spending the time with us as always. The No Spin News with Bill O'Reilly is up next. Fields high.